Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. March 25th, and the news is again unfortunately dominated by refugee stories. Um, we all know what's happening. Um, on our so-called, uh, I'm not sure it's my, our southern border in terms of a new refugee problem. Uh, many people want to come into the America, uh, into the United States, and the United States is not keen on having those people coming in. Uh, President Biden has announced that Vice President Harris will oversee efforts to resolve problems. Ultimately, of course, this is a human crisis, a crisis of humanity, of human pain and, and desperation. This is the headline of a, an op-ed in the Washington Post. And unfortunately, in America at least, we remain all too parochial in our sense of refugee crises, but the crises are all over the world. Um, in the last day or two, Kenya has ordered the closure of a refugee, two refugee camps uh, in, in, in the eastern part of the country, uh, Dadaab and Kakuma. Uh, these are, in fact, the, the largest refugee, uh, uh, refugee camps in the world, 210,000 strong uh, near the Somalia border and very much uh, inhabited by people who are fleeing various kinds of discord in Somalia. Um, as it happens, today we have a guest on the show who has a new book out about the refugee crisis, both in America and indeed in East Africa. Um, his name is Ty McCormack. He has a new book out, Beyond the Sea and Sun. Uh, he's a very distinguished journalist and writer, and his new book is Beyond the Sand and Sea, One Family's Quest for a Country to Call Home. It's a it's an elegiac, a very moving, a very profound discourse, a piece of very creative nonfiction on the challenges and opportunities of our refugee culture. And as it happens, it all begins in that camp in eastern Kenya. Um, Ty, what is your response, uh, first of all, to that news, that very bad news? I, I would assume you would agree it's bad news uh, coming out of Kenya about the the, the closure of these camps? Unfortunately, it's not the first time that Kenya has threatened to close Dadaab. Uh, in fact, I, I covered the same story in, in 2017 and uh, again in 2019. Um, it's it's, it's a, a terrible and destabilizing thing for people living in the camp. Uh, unfortunately, it seems like really it's a, it's a political move on the part of the government. It's a way that periodically the Kenyan government uh, renegotiates the bargain that it has with the international community uh, to fund uh, the, the housing of refugees in Kenya. Um, Kenya not unreasonably feels that uh, as a, um, a primary um, you know, home for refugees from across the region, that it doesn't get the support that it needs from Western countries uh, like the United States, which are, of course, very keen to keep refugees uh, out of its borders. Um, and so this is one way um, that the Kenyan government puts the squeeze on Western donors. Uh, unfortunately, the victims, the ultimate victims are the people who live in the camps, whose lives are turned 
you know, on their heads and who, who are, uh, you know, periodically fearing for their lives that they're going to have to return to Somalia. Somalia is uh, not safe for return uh, in, in most parts of it. You know, it's, it's certainly not as dire as it was uh, 10 or 20 years ago, um, but the parts of the country that the UN certifies as safe for return, uh, I've been there myself, uh, and I can tell you that they are oftentimes not. Uh, and there are, is nowhere close to the same support for refugees that there is in a place like Dadaab. Dadaab is far from a perfect place to live. It's, it's an incredibly difficult place to live. Refugees don't have many rights. Uh, they're not allowed to work. Uh, they're not allowed to leave the camps. Uh, it's, it's a far from an ideal existence, but it is better and more secure. And many of the refugees there would prefer to remain there th uh, than to return home. And here we have a map for those people watching, as opposed to listening, of Dadaab. It's uh, very much in the, the eastern part of Kenya, close to the Somalian border. Um, in this sort of return to normalcy in the Biden administration, uh, the U.S. is supposedly, quote unquote, concerned over possible closure, which is perhaps um, another way of saying that America has other things to think about. Now, your book, in a way, uh, Ty, begins at this camp uh, in the eastern, uh, the, 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 the Dab camp uh, in the eastern part of Kenya. But oddly enough, it ends in a very different part of the world, in Princeton, New Jersey, or certainly Princeton has an important role in your narrative. Tell me about the book, why you wrote it, and, and what it really is about, one family's quest for a country to call home. The book is really the epic story of one family of Somali refugees and their 30-year odyssey to reach the United States. You know, this is a family that fled Somalia in 1991, the year that Siad Barre's regime collapsed, uh, ended up in that camp, as you mentioned, Dadaab refugee camp for much uh, of the... And for, for people who don't know, Barre was, uh, what, the, the Somalian uh, dictator? Somalian dictator who, who ruled for much of the Cold War. Uh, and the end of his regime really kind of spelled the end of, of Somalia's stability. Uh, Somalia, as most Americans know it, uh, came into being as a result of the collapse of Barre's regime. Uh, the family I, I follow, uh, you know, follows many, many millions of refugees that left um, Somalia at that time. Uh, and the camps were set up to accommodate them. Uh, and they uh, have remained virtually unchanged for the next three decades. Um, and as uh, the course of the book unfolds, uh, the, much of the family is still stranded in the camp uh, on the eve of Donald Trump's uh, refugee ban in, in 2017. So uh, nearly three decades later, uh, they're still waiting for, for, for a place to call home. So in many ways, the book is uh, the story of the UN's broken refugee resettlement system and the ways in which families like this, millions of them, uh, get trapped in limbo for, for years, if not decades. Um, as you say, in a way, um, it, is, it is an uplifting story. This one particular family does, at the end of the Odyssey, make it to the United States. Uh, the, the, the main protagonist, uh, a young man by the name of Assad, uh, wins a scholarship to study Princeton, at Princeton University, and his sister uh, gets resettlement and ends up uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But for every uh, refugee that makes it, uh, you know, there are 10, if not 100 or 1,000 that end up left behind and are still uh, in places like Dadaab. 
Yeah, it's worse than that. You had a, a very moving and, and troubling op-ed in the New York Times a um, couple of months ago about you know, the, the, the headline, it was your headline, the Muslim ban is over, the harm lives on. Uh, I don't want to bring up Donald Trump, but essentially it's the story um, of a young man who committed suicide because of, uh, and again, a, a, another guy from the Dadaab refugee camp who didn't end up at Princeton, who ended up hanging themselves. Tell me about this Muhammad Abdulrahman Ahmed, because he's much more typical than the guy who ended up at Princeton, isn't he? Sadly, yes. I think that uh, certain, not the suicide part, but certainly uh, the failure to, to realize his dreams, um, I think in a lot of ways is typical. Uh, I think it's ho- hard to overstate the harm of the Trump years in places like Dadaab. Uh, you know, this is a place, as the main character in my book writes, uh, that people dreamed about coming to America, that they spoke about America in the same way that they spoke about the hereafter. Um, and f- for many years, thousands and thousands of people were resettled each year uh, to places like Dearborn, Michigan, and Minneapolis, and Seattle. Uh, and then on the eve of Trump's travel ban, the spigot was turned off overnight. The flight stopped, the vetting stopped, uh, the entire humanitarian apparatus that was geared around essentially giving people new lives, uh, ground to a halt overnight. And the despair set in very quickly. Uh, I visited the camp in 2019, uh, about a year and a half into Donald Trump's presidency. And uh, the contrast between uh, the environment then and the way that it had been in the Obama era is, is, was extraordinary. Uh, Describe the camp to me a little bit, uh, Ty. We, you know, we're rather uh, victims of of these kinds of photographs. How how dire, how depressing was visiting this camp for you? I wouldn't say it's it's dire or depressing. And I think it's a complicated place. I think the same reason why people are upset that it's being closed today uh, it tells you something about the fact that it's still home for people there, Uh, and and there is. Uh, there's a, a unique culture uh, that is has taken hold in Dadaab that's different than the culture in Somalia and different than the culture uh, in Kenya, and that it's a product of uh, of the communities that people have built there and how they have turned it into a permanent city. In terms of what it is like and the amenities and what's available, um, it is truly an otherworldly place for uh, people from the West. It has no paved roads, no running water, no two-story buildings. In fact, uh, Assad, who's the main character in the book, had not seen any of these things until he was 16 or 17 years old. Um, the entire universe that he had known was this sort of sea of sand and thorn scrub and makeshift tarp dwellings that uh, I would imagine looks very similar to the way that it did when the UN set it up in 1991 or 1992. Um, yeah, and when I was looking at the Dadaab uh, website today, there's even information for journalists, filmmakers, and researchers visiting Dadaab. Is it a, a place that a lot of writers and, and, and documentary makers go to, to essentially see human suffering and injustice? Well, I don't think that's how they'd put it. I don't think they go to see human suffering. It's a place where lots of Kenya-based journalists go uh, for reasons such as today. There's a, a, a significant news story uh, there's been a few books written about it. A, a beautiful book by uh, an author named Ben Rollins uh, wrote a book called City of Thorns that's 
uh, more a, a history of the camp itself uh, and, and a study of nine different refugees from it. Um, but it, it's, 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 a, it's a unique place in the sense that um, the people who come and who go are journalists, UN workers, humanitarians of various sorts. The people who live there are not free to go. Uh, the, the comparison that I draw in the book is to Macondo um, in, in 100 uh, Years of Solitude, uh, that it is a place where traveling gypsies come to sell their wares, traveling gypsies in this case being, um, being foreign aid workers, uh, but not one in which uh, those who live there are, are, are sort of free to come and go. Ty, uh, you were saying that, that under Trump, American refugee policy was a catastrophe and profound injustice. In your New York Times piece, you underline that, uh, writing in, in January 2021, you write, in the fiscal year that ended on September 30th, the United States welcomed just 11,814 refugees compared with 85,000 in 2016, the last year of the Obama administration and the lowest since the modern U.S. resettlement scheme was created in 1980. I mean, it's particularly shocking. I don't know what the numbers are in, in Germany or in Sweden or in Australia or Canada, but I'm assuming they're way higher than that. They're not, actually. Um, I'm not sure off the top of my head what they were for this year. I know that Canada surpassed the U.S. as the uh, primary destination for resettlement. Yeah, and during, Canada is about, what, a, a sixth or a seventh of the size of the United States in terms on of a, population? On a per capita basis, Canada is now putting the United States to shame. But to put it in context, the United States has resettled three out of every four uh, refugees that have been resettled anywhere in the world between 1980 and today. That's It's about three million out of four million. So on any given year, the United States resettles more refugees than the other 33 or 34 re designated resettlement countries combined. So it's not that the US isn't pulling its weight, it is. Uh, it's that things changed so dramatically under Trump. Uh, and that, as you said, it went from uh, 85,000 in the final year of the Obama administration to under 12,000 in the final year of Trump's presidency. Uh, in places like Dadaab, it was felt extremely, extremely um, abruptly. Uh, in the years preceding Trump's travel ban, you know, three, four, five thousand refugees from that camp alone would come to the United States. In 2018, eight refugees were resettled to Dadaab, and the following year, 14 were. How would you respond to many people in the Republican Party, and perhaps even in the Democratic Party, who, who simply say, well... It's all very well for America to bring in refugees, but we have too many problems of our own. We have huge poverty, unemployment, crime, and we simply don't have the resources or the bandwidth to bring in more people. I would say read this story about Assad, and uh, I think that perhaps you'll come away with a feeling that refugees may be more of a solution to our problems uh, than one more problem to pile on top. Uh, I think that Western countries across the board are facing a demographic challenge uh, that will leave them unable to fund the welfare state uh, in the not too distant future. And younger um, populations from refugee sending, sending countries will, will send people here who are able to work and pay taxes and, and pay for the, the health care of elderly people. I don't think that there is a migration crisis at the southern border. 
these are two different issues that we're conflating here. Refugee resettlement happens through the UN. It doesn't, it, it's a totally separate basket of issues, but it does result in people coming here from other places. Um, and by and large, people who are of working age uh, and who can be, you know, the, the other thing I, I will say about particularly the refugee camps in Kenya, people are extraordinarily well educated in those camps by the standards of, 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 of that part of the world. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that Assad is able to arrive at Princeton and do the work uh, of, of students who have, you know, come from this country and from other privileged backgrounds. So, uh, you know, my feeling is that uh, there is uh, more of a political problem than uh, an actual policy problem. As you say, people should read your book, uh, not just for the the policy implications, but because it's so beautifully written. Let, let me just, for those people who haven't been lucky enough yet to read the book, uh, let me just begin uh, the introduction, quoting, as he stood in line for immigration at JFK International Airport, Assad Hussein tried to recall the final stanza of a poem by William Ernest Henley. In front of him, over the heads of a, do a dozen disheveled travelers, stood a row of glass cubicles marking the border of the United States. Um, unremarkable as it must have seemed to the other travelers that day, the sterile fluorescent lit gateway to America felt surreal to him. And there's an element of, of surrealism about the book and the narrative and about this young man's uh, journey from the refugee camp in eastern Kenya to 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 Princeton. As, as I asked earlier, um, how atypical is this or was this young man to be so smart that he got the Princeton scholarship? And, and, and should we use his model as something for others or is it exceptional? There's no doubt about it that Assad is an exceptional, unique, one in a million person. Um, but that's a different thing than saying that there aren't people uh, in his position who can do uh, what he has done. In fact, there's another character in the book, a young man named Becker, um, who is justice driven and who was Assad's best friend growing up. Uh, and they studied together. They spent long hours preparing for the national exam that essentially determines your life for the rest of your life in Kenya. And Becker actually performed uh, extremely well on that exam, um, well enough to win a scholarship from the German government called uh, the Albert Einstein uh, German Refugee Initiative Scholarship, uh, which funded him to do a degree in public health in Kenya at Eldoret University. Unfortunately, after four years of study, uh, Becker is educated, but no more qualified to work in the eyes of the Kenyan government, because the Kenyan government still forbids refugees from working. And of course, uh, a passport or a visa to the United States is, is out of the question, at least for now. Uh, Becker hopes to win a, a scholarship for graduate study uh, and, and follow in Assad's footsteps. But, you know, for every, for every Assad that makes it there uh, is a Becker who is left behind. Um, and many of, those, many of those students could absolutely do the work, uh, beat you or I out at, at any sort of academic contest. Uh, there's a wonderful scholarship that I want to give a little shout out to here called KENSAP, the Kenya Scholars Access Initiative that supports about two dozen uh, students from underprivileged backgrounds every year. Uh, and these kids go on to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, MIT. They become rocket scientists uh, from, from backgrounds not so dissimilar from, from Assad's or Becker's. So uh, 
ability is not the problem. It, it's opportunity. But I'm not even convinced by this importance of ability. Doesn't America need more plumbers, car maintenance people, as opposed to nuclear scientists from Princeton or Harvard? The fact that this guy won the scholarship to Princeton or Harvard or wherever doesn't or shouldn't, at least in my mind, make him a more attractive proposition as an immigrant, as a refugee, than someone who can fix a toilet. Could not agree more. Uh, I think that you're absolutely right, that what the United States needs uh, is a workforce that, uh, you know, hits all of those skill sets. Uh, I think we, we need the nuclear scientists. I think we need uh, people who can do research on infectious disease and all sorts of things. I don't think it's a coincidence that some of the people who are involved in developing uh, of the COVID-19 vaccine were from immigrant backgrounds. Um, but I think we also need people uh, who can do all sorts of things. Uh, and that's, that's absolutely true. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, it is how our country, uh, or my country anyway, uh, does run in a sort of a de facto sense in that uh, many of these jobs are held by undocumented people. It's just that we're unwilling to um, sort of legalize their status and acknowledge the contributions that they make. You end, Ty, on, an, on a personal note, you, you wonder whether um, uh, the, the kids in, in Africa and other refugee camps or other people wanting to leave their homeland or wherever they've been marooned, they should want a dream of America. I, I, is the dreaming about America, has it changed, not just under Trump, but in the 21st century, as America itself is going through such profound post-industrial change? I think that it has. Uh, I think it was gradual and then it was all at once under Trump. Uh, as I mentioned, I went back to Dadaab in, in 2019 and uh, the, the, the greeting that I received was much different. Um, and, and people's perception of America had changed uh, almost uh, you know, black and white uh, difference, 180 degree difference. Uh, it was uh, it was a sobering thing, and you know I think one thing that a lot of Americans don't understand is just how powerful of a soft power tool refugee resettlement was. You know I, I think don't think it's an exaggeration to say that many refugees had a higher opinion of the United States before they were resettled. Uh, you know this it creates such goodwill for for this country at such low cost, um, and yet that was all sort of thrown away during the Trump years. How much is known when you talk to the people in the refugee camps of America's history of slavery and of the struggle of African-Americans to, to become free? Uh, I think it, it runs the gamut. I think those who you would expect to be aware of that, uh, that history are certainly... You know, and aren't they horrified? Why would they want to come to a country guilty of such terrible crimes? It's as if... Jews would want to return to Germany, although, of course, there are some Jews now who have decided to go back to Germany. Well, I think the relative comparison, the relevant comparison is probably uh, colonialism. I think that uh, the immediate harm that, that most people in this part of the world are aware of and are still uh, recovering from the trauma of has to do with colonial occupation from European powers. And so mm. uh, I think that the crimes that America committed against its native population, against its African-American population, that feels more distant to, to folks in East Africa. Um, I think it, it's not that they don't understand that history. I think that they see it as, um, I think that they see it as more distant. And I think they see as the, they see the American project as more committed to self-improvement. Uh, we are not, uh, you know, still 
still sort of hanging on to our colonial uh, legacy in the way that I think the way that Britain, for instance, interacts in Kenya uh, can feel to, to many Kenyans as if they are trying to retain their some aspect of their colonial um, influence there. And the United States doesn't interact with these countries in the same way. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly no defender of the, United, of the United Kingdom on this front. But if you had a young kid come up to you in the camp and said, look, I, I have an opportunity to go to the United States uh, and also to Germany, which, which, which country would you choose? What advice would you give? Maybe not Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Northern European countries. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that. Uh, on the last day that I was in the camp, uh, in 2019, I was on my UN flight back and there was one family being resettled uh, on the same flight as me. And I just kept thinking to myself, they were being resettled to the United Kingdom. Uh, and I just kept thinking to myself, you know, this is the most important day for this family uh, that, that they will ever have. They will, they will always look back on this day and they will remember what the United Kingdom did for them. That's such a missed opportunity for the United States that they could have stepped in and they could have resettled that family. Uh, they would have resettled that family uh, under a previous administration, uh, but they've ceded that right. As to whether or not uh, you know the opportunities are, uh, are are comparable between Europe and the United States, I, I think there you know there there are certainly better social services in some European countries. Frankly, better in Germany than in the UK. Um, I think that there are refugee resettlement agencies in the U.S. that are doing tremendous tremendous work to smooth the path for new arrivals. Uh, organizations like the IRC and, and dozens and dozens of local ones, and uh, you know, I think I think that the the results sort of speak to them for themselves. You know, I think most of those who have been resettled uh, end up gainfully employed, uh, and after some period of years, I'm not sure off the top of my head, most end up paying more in taxes than they receive in in social services. Uh, Ty, so far in this conversation, you've talked about the couple of young men who, who came. It's not just men, of course. It's also girls. There are girls in your narrative, too. And at the end of your, your experience, at the end of the book, uh, you, uh, you, and again, in, in your, your wonderful way you describe this, you, you passed some girls. You said, at length, we passed a group of girls in long, flowing abayas. They looked young enough to be in school, but it was Eid, the final day of Ramadan, and the school were closed. I wondered if the girls had heard about the boy who had hanged themselves, and if they shared his feeling of hopelessness. The, I'm guessing the boy you're talking about in that sense is the boy you describe in your New York Times um, editorial. Yes, is the challenge for girls, for young women, is it even more shocking, even more profound? And is the impact, you know, you talk about the young men who, the young man who committed suicide. I know that the rates for suicide amongst young men in America are four times more than for girls. Is it having the same mental anguish, do you think, on the young boys and girls of Africa trying to get to America? Without a doubt, it is a harder road for the women in these positions. Um, I think that Marion, who is the, the other protagonist in, in the book, the sister of Assad, uh, she is just an extraordinary, extraordinary woman. She carries the family on her back uh, for many years. She ends she up. She went to Minnesota. Where, where is she now? Is it, is it Minnesota? She's in Milwaukee. She's in Milwaukee. Oh, Milwaukee. Uh, yeah. She has five, five young children. But, you know, she, she worked throughout her childhood, had to drop out of school to take care of the family, was really the rock for the family that kept everyone going. And I think. A, a, Another way of reading this story is that in other circumstances, she may have been the one who ended up at Princeton, 
there, there was nothing in the ability of the two uh, siblings, certainly nothing different in their drive, uh, except for sort of the, the dumb luck of, of, of gender and of the various obstacles that um, were thrown up in some places and, and weren't in others. Yeah, there's a, a tragedy within a tragedy, or I guess it's a tragedy within not so much of a tragedy. Uh, your book, uh, Time Cormac, Beyond the Sea and Sand, One Family's Quest for a Country to Call Home, it's not only an, an enormously important political book about our responsibility as human beings to bring people in, to offer our homes to others who are less fortunate, but it's beautifully written, poignant, I'm sure it's going to be made into a film. Uh, a must read. I know you're in Brooklyn now, very different from East Kenya. Like me uh, and everybody else, we're still stuck at home in these weird COVID times. In addition to your new book, Ty, what else should people be reading? You know, the book that I've just finished reading and I think is really just an extraordinary read and I encourage everyone else to buy it, uh, is Traveling Wild Black by Nanjala Niabola. Uh, Nanjala is just an extraordinary uh, Kenyan thinker, writer, uh, and this is a collection of essays that she's written uh, essentially on, on human mobility. Nanjala is a, an avid traveler. She's traveled to, I think, 70 different countries uh, and writes about uh, the unique experience of, of doing so as an African and, and as a black woman. Um, and I think in this era in which we are parsing human mobility in all sorts of different ways, migration, refugees, uh, and of course, travel in the time of COVID, uh, I think there's no better book to uh, to read at this moment than, than Traveling Wild Black. Do you know her, Ty? I do. Uh, I've had the, uh, the, the privilege of editing, editing her at Foreign Affairs. She's written some okay. beautiful essays for us at FA. Well, now, and we're doing this live, you've got to promise me that you'll get her on the show. I'd love to have her on. I'd love to read the book. Thank you, Ty McCormack. Congratulations on a marvelous book. We will get uh, th that other writer on, Traveling Wild Black. Looks like a great book. Your book, Beyond the Sand and Sea, is a must-read. I think it's going to win a lot of the awards in 2021. Keep well, and we'll have you on again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on.